0: Welcome to the People's Historians podcast from the Zen Education Project, coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools. In this episode, from our series on Teach the Black Freedom Struggle, our host, Jessica Rucker, a high school teacher, speaks to Teach Reconstruction Campaign Advisor and Northwestern University History Professor Kate Macer about her book, Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement from the Revolution to Reconstruction. They discuss courageous Black resistance in the North, leading up to the Civil War, defining civil rights in a 19th century context, and white backlash to gains made by African-Americans. Jessica starts by introducing Kate Maser.
1: I feel so excited and so lucky to be joined this evening by Dr. Kate Maser. Um, Kate Maser is a professor of history at Northwestern University. And in addition to this awesome book, Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement, From the Revolution to Reconstruction, she's also an author of An Example for All the Land, Emancipation and the Struggle Over Equality, in My Home City of Washington, D.C., great, great books. Um, Kate Maser is also an advisor to the Zen Education Project's Teach Reconstruction Campaign, which will be releasing a national report on the teaching of reconstruction this fall. All right, Kate, can I call you Kate tonight? Absolutely. All right, awesome. I am so excited to, to, to get into our conversation tonight. I'm learning so much. Um, so let's start actually with the title. I feel the title is very compelling. So tell us a little bit about how or why you chose to title the book Until Justice Be Done, America's First Civil Rights Movement From the Revolution to Reconstruction.
2: Um, well, first, thank you. I just want to thank everyone at the Zen Education Project for making this event happen. As you mentioned, I've been an advisor on the Reconstruction Project. And it's so um, it's such an honor, really, to be part of this wonderful series and to be here with so many educators of different kinds. And so um, thank you for having me. And Jessica, in particular, thanks so much for t- taking the time and engaging with this book. Um, So the title, it was interesting to just think back on that. So first of all, the first part of the title, Until Justice Be Done, I was um, interested in finding a kind of small and telling quote from the book to use in the title. And this title is um, a part—a phrase from a source that I cite in the book. Um, It comes at the end, the phrase, Till Justice Be Done, actually comes at the end of a petition created by Black residents of Ohio to petition the state legislature for repeal of what we call the Black Laws. And I'm sure we'll get into what those laws were um, and stuff like that. But so by 1837, a group of Black Ohioans was trying to organize across the state um, to to petition the legislature to repeal these, these terrible racist laws. And um, I found their petition published in an anti-slavery newspaper published by white anti-slavery activists out of Cincinnati. And in that October 17, 1837 issue was a petition where in which this group of people says, um, you know, they call for repeal of these racist laws of the state of Ohio, which particularly deprive them of the right to testify in court. Um, and they say that racist, like race-based laws are unjust on their face and they kind of defend themselves as taxpayers from the state of Ohio. And they conclude their petition by saying, and from the exercise of this inalienable right of freely expressing our opinions, they can never cease till justice be done. And so in that quote, they're talking about they will keep on this work until justice be done, until we see this change that we want. And so, I, I really, uh, I liked that as a, as a sending a message that what this book is about is about a long struggle for justice, uh, one that started way back in the period I'm talking about. I mean, certainly in many ways started before, um, you know, and in many ways continues to this day. I'll just say one quick thing about the second part of the title, America's First Civil Rights Movement: From uh, the Revolution to Reconstruction. I was struggling with the what should come after the colon in the title of my book, so I can't take full credit for this one. Uh, My editor and I were going back and forth about what words should be in that part of the title, and and you know, kind of what kind of message do you want to send. Um, And when we arrived at America's First Civil Rights Movement, it was a little bit of an aha moment because you know, it really, um, first of all, it's obviously a title that will hopefully cause people to kind of connect this story to what they know to be the the civil rights movement, which we usually associate with the 1950s and 60s. Um, And so it's kind of immediately takes you, tells you something about what you're probably going to read about in this book. But the other thing that I liked about it when we finally came up with this was, uh, this is really a book about people struggling for racial equality in civil rights as people in the 19th century understood civil rights. So there's a fair amount in the book about how people defined what civil rights were and then calling for racial equality in those rights. And and part of what I write about in the book is how people actually distinguished at the time between what they considered civil rights and what they considered political rights. And that's maybe something we can also talk about. But when we finally came up with that title, I was kind of like, oh, that really is helpful in a way to um, remind, to kind of telegraph right away. This is about a struggle for racial equality and civil rights that people probably mostly don't already know about, but they can help think about it by putting it in the context of, of things that are more familiar from the 20th
1: century. It's amazing, because I tell you this, this title alone was enough for me to say, oh, I owe some students some apologies, because I I taught in 2018, 2019, an introduction to the Civil Rights Movement class, and one of the first questions I asked students was to identify some historical figures from the Civil Rights Movement, and students would say stuff like, Martin Luther King, Frederick Douglass, and and I used to kind of- Giggle under my breath like Frederick Douglass, but but now it turns out, right? <laughs> this 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 is the civil rights movement before the civil war, and so now I can go back to those students and say, actually, you were also right because you know our history has history, and so thank you for that that compelling title um, that just invited me right in. So let's swing into the book a little bit. So from what I've read so far, um, and I'm it is just juicy. I got my little tabs, things I want to come back to. Um, Your book focuses largely on the antebellum period and addresses what what we're going to call right now the civil rights movement before the civil war. So um, I'm I'm kind of like a visual theatrical kind of person. So if the antebellum period was a stage um, in U.S. history, like break this down like a story. So what would be the plot? What's the setting? Who are the characters? Describe the, the conflict for us. And then say a little bit, More because you were leading into this about how the antebellum period connects to today.
2: Okay, big question, right?
1: Um, And I think you know I'll just
2: start by by giving some of the like the touchstones of this period, kind of as it's conventionally thought of. I mean, the antebellum period is usually considered like the 1830s until the Civil War starts, so it's the decades that immediately come before the Civil War. in the, I mean, there are many ways that we can talk about this period. Um, generally speaking, a lot of times the way that it's talked about um, is it's, we're going to spend some time in this period talking about why the civil war happened. So the Civil War continues to be like a major turning point in American history. So one of the questions that's defined the study of the antebellum period is accounting for this sectional conflict. So you might have, you know, you have in this period the uh, Mexican American war, you have in this period, the compromise of 1850, you have the Dred Scott decision, you know, you have this kind of march in a way it's sometimes taught as like a march toward uh, war. It's also a period, I mean, kind of starts before the 1830s, but of the expansion of the right to vote for white men, right? So we know this history of the kind of gradual dropping of qualifications like taxpayer or um, property owner for white men to be able to vote, even as in many Northern states and some Southern states, African-American men were disenfranchised. Um, and so in this period, this is a, a period when in most places, it's only white men who are allowed to have the right to vote. Um, the Seneca Falls Convention is another touchstone in this period, the growing uh, movement for rights for women um, and including women's right to vote. Um, and so then I would just say within my book and the, and the stories that I'm interested in telling here, I. Uh, focus on the Northern states primarily. And one of the key things that helped me think about what I was doing here was thinking about those Northern states as post-slavery societies. So one of the things we have to kind of keep in mind is that slavery, the institution of slavery was legal throughout the British colonies of North America at the time of the American Revolution. And then what happens is the northern tier of states goes on to abolish slavery in a variety of different ways, mostly gradual, sometimes not. Um, the states of the Midwest, which I spend a fair amount of time talking about, uh, came in, slavery already uh, existed in the, what was known as the Northwest Territory. Um, they came in with a bar on slavery and a kind of tendency to end slavery there. Um, but at the same time, as I write about in the book, most of those states, especially the ones, uh, Ohio, Illinois, and Indiana bordering on the Ohio River, passed laws that explicitly discriminated against free African Americans. And so one of the key key points or starting points of my book is there was actually a very large, uh, complicated, intensely fought debate about Racial equality the rights of free African Americans in the free states that covered just about all the same issues that you would expect to see in reconstruction. In that post slavery moment where slavery is destroyed throughout the United States, we see all of those same issues debated and hashed out in the antebellum North Um, and so that's one of the key. um, Ways that I want us to, to kind of think about these debates and these conversations is this beginning with the abolition of slavery, of racial slavery anywhere, raises questions about what is the future of communities? What is the future of a nation? When you have lived with the institutionalization of race-based slavery, and also in the case of the United States, settler colonialism to regimes of racial inequality, Um, how do you then come to grips with it, right? And so the, the discussion in my book is a lot about various debates ranging from the white Americans who believe there actually could never be a place for black free black people in this country and advocated what was called colonization or the idea that free African-Americans should leave the country because there there never would be a space. It was, you either could be a free person in which case you were a white person or an enslaved person of African descent and they had no room in their imagination for a multiracial nation. So all the way from those folks on the one hand to the people I tend to focus on in the book who are the people who envisioned something quite different, envisioned a multiracial society, envisioned some forms of racial equality, envisioned some forms of racial justice. Um, And so this is the kind of cauldron of issues that I'm writing about in, in this book.
1: You know, first of all, there's, there's so much to be quoted and tweeted here, but this notion of the racial imagination, um, and this is what was coming up for me as I'm reading your book. Like first, I'm like, yo, it was this many free Black people petitioning, using the courts, using the press um, to, to expand their freedom. Like that's the first like aha moment. And, and, and I'm saying this as a teacher of, of US history. I, I was like, yo, for real? But but what you were just talking about, the racial imagination, right? Um, I am my ancestors' wildest dreams. And so it's just so uncanny that some of the tactics that you talk about um, in terms of the future of African-American communities, like the level of vision that Black folks had is so similar to conversations that we're having now. But I'm gonna stick with the antebellum period um, and and let's, let's, let's keep unpacking this. So you're, you're, you're talking about resistance to uh, oppression quite a bit, racialized, very intentional, racialized oppression. I um, forgot what Clint Smith calls it. It's not the dehumanization, but this attempt to dehumanize humans who are Black people, right? So what, what did resistance look like during that era? And then how was it different or similar to what we know now as the, the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s? or even to today. I mean, you tell some great stories from that that era specifically um, of African-American people. So, um, and I'm thinking about, I wonder if this is a good time we can bring up my friend from DC, you wrote about DC in here. Um, Was this Horton, Gilbert Horton? Maybe we could talk a little bit about or we, let's let's stick with the resistance piece. Let me just okay. keep it there.
2: Yeah, so, well, let's get back. Let's make sure we get back to DC um, for sure. But uh, the, um, cause I totally want to talk about DC and the role that it plays and people in Washington play in the book. Um, but yeah, so, so there were a lot of ways that people mobilized to resist the racist public policies that they confronted. And, um, you know, one of the things that is, I want to talk I want to get around to talking about um direct action um because but let me just begin by some so people were very savvy in their political organizing and they would identify the what is the best venue to make the kinds of changes that I want to make so they were not like going oh you know helter skelter like I'm not sure where I want to direct my protest Um, But like I said, in the example of the petition from 1837 that I mentioned, these were black Ohioans who first met in Cleveland um, to develop this kind of organization and then send somebody named Molliston Madison Clark um, throughout the state talking to people about the conditions in which they lived or urging them to sign petitions to the state legislature. Um, They knew that the state legislature was responsible for the laws that oppressed them And so their attention was being directed at the legislature and they were gonna petition. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to think about is um, African-Americans for most of the time that I'm writing about were only about 1% of the population of the state of Ohio and African-American men were prohibited from voting. So the state constitution said, white men only are allowed to vote. So how do you, if you want the laws to change in your state How actually do you make change when you're the people who care most about the issue are a very small minority of the population and also can't vote? Um, And so this is where petitioning comes in. Petitioning was supposed to be available to anyone. You did not have to be a voter to petition. You did not have to be a man. You did not have to even be an adult. You didn't have to be a citizen. By tradition, going way back in time, Anyone can petition the government, and anyone is entitled to a response and so what would happen when these folks petition so and let me do okay let me just sidebar for a second to give a better sense of what they did. So petitioning involved as I mentioned with Mollis and Madison Clark like. He went throughout the state talking to people on a very local level petitioning would be, you know, you would go door to door and ask people to sign this petition and in the course of doing that you would be explaining here's the issue here's why we should care about it here's why you should sign the petition. People could also develop petitions in churches, right? You could be at church on Sunday and afterwards people could be walking around, you know, talking about the issue and distributing the petition. And so the act of gathering signatures on a petition itself is as I think we can kind of imagine from present day, it's an act of organizing, right? It is an act of helping people develop a consciousness about an issue that this movement cares about. And so, but then you might say, well, why would they have any hope of even doing this? I mean they're just you know the small minority of people who probably the racist government of the state doesn't really want to do anything that they want them to do. Um, That wasn't quite the case and it partly has to do with the fact that there was a tradition that when people petitioned the government was kind of obligated to take their petition under consideration and so what would happen in the Ohio legislature for example is Um, The petitions sent in by African-Americans plus the petitions that were sent in for repeal of the Black laws by white people would be grouped together and sent to a subcommittee. And the subcommittee's charge would be like, report back on, do you think that these petitioners wish should be granted, that they want to repeal these racist laws of the state? And usually what would happen until 1849 was the uh, subcommittee would come back and say, the answer is no we do not think that we should repeal the laws. And they would say all kinds of crappy things about why they believed that they needed these laws that were designed to oppress and marginalize African-Americans in the state and to discourage migration of black people into the state. But here's why it still mattered even if they didn't win the issue right then. Number one, these activists would then publish in newspapers um, the really racist reports from the state committee and critique them, right? So they would put them on display and say, look what the Ohio legislature is doing now. Look how horrible, look how unjust this is. And the other thing that could happen is sometimes the committees were divided. So you might have a three-person committee from the legislature where two people say we're keeping these laws, and one person says, I think we should repeal them. And that itself is going to be a win, right? Then they're going to publish, the activists are going to publicize that minority opinion and say, look, we've got this guy saying all the right things about about our issue. Now we just need to get more people on board. So they're using petitioning, they're using organizing, petitioning, and the media that they have at their disposal to get the word out. And these are, so these are just kind of some examples of how they, even though they were in a position of not a lot of strength, right? For a lot of this period, um, they're making the most of uh, what they're doing and they actually are successful in gaining support for the issue.
1: So I'm, I'm, I'm getting so uh, fired up here because I remember reading in the book, how you describe like petitions would be published in the paper. So I would get my paper and I could cut it out. Like, I'm like that, that is, that's some street level Gorilla, I'm going hard by any and every means necessary. And I just felt so inspired. And it reminded me of my days as an organizer, like the door knocking and petitioning, that, that is not light work. And so, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, again, this is America's first civil rights movement before the civil war. Like when the country is still at odds with itself around whether or not this peculiar institution, so to speak, should still exist. My folks, are putting the petitions in the newspaper, like yo, cut this out. You go talk to those folks. We're gonna talk to our and, and it just was super inspiring. So we're gonna go off script a little bit. So let's talk about DC. I, I was, I was, man, I was, I was both excited but frustrated about the story of Gilbert Horton in my home city of Washington D.C. So, so unpack him and his situation a little bit for us. And um, I think this is where we get to. Yeah, yeah. So the national intelligencer. I'll let you do your thing, but um, tell us a little bit about what happened there.
2: Sure. So, uh, so, so DC figures into the book. Well, let me say some parts of the book are about the stuff we've been talking about now, where it's state level activism, trying to repeal racist laws at the state level. And these laws were different states had different types of laws with respect to race and racial discrimination. And the, the worst perpetrators in terms of having just a whole range of these types of racially restrictive, racially discriminatory laws, the worst perpetrators outside the slave states were Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio. So I spend a certain amount of time on those states. But then the other um, thing I look at is the, the problem or the challenge of African-Americans and interstate travel and interstate migration. And this is an issue where the question of racial equality and civil rights comes to the federal level sometimes. And so to give one example, and this is, you know it is a DC example, just super interesting because of how it all played out. Um, there was a, an African-American man named Gilbert Horton. He was originally from New York. He was enslaved when he was born and his father actually earned enough money to purchase Gilbert's freedom. His father evidently was a free man already and purchased Gilbert's freedom. And Gilbert, they're from rural Westchester County. It's not so rural now, but they're from a kind of rural area. Gilbert Horton moves to the city of New York and he gets a job as a sailor on ships that go up and down the Atlantic coast of the United States. And this was a pretty common job for free black men who lived in places like New York and Massachusetts and Philadelphia um, to big port, Atlantic port cities in the Northern States to get jobs on ships. These were decent jobs in a racially discriminatory job market. These were decent jobs for African-Americans. They paid pretty well. There was a fair amount of independence in these jobs and you get to travel, right? And so um, Gilbert Horton, is on a ship, he's working, he's a sailor, and then for some reason, we don't know why, he gets off his ship when it's in port in Norfolk, Virginia, and he makes his way on his own to Washington, D.C. Now, D.C. at that time was a jurisdiction where slavery was legal. Um, It was a complicated place, as you all, if you know about the history of D.C., you will know that the free black population was pretty large and growing, and so by the time 1860 comes around, the vast majority of African Americans who live in the District of Columbia are free rather than enslaved. But it is still a slaveholding jurisdiction under the thumb of slave owners and their and their interests, right? So, so various attempts to like abolish slavery in Washington or, um, you know, kind of make the city more of a beacon of freedom have already. Failed and will continue to fail uh, in the future. And among those laws um, and policies in DC were laws that were very characteristic of any slaveholding jurisdiction, which were um, any person of African descent who was out kind of at large on the streets was considered their assumption was that they were an enslaved person, perhaps on the run. Rather than the assumption was that they're a free person, right? So sometimes that legal principle is called the prima facie principle. In other words, that their black or dark brown skin is prima facie evidence that they are enslaved and the onus is on them to prove that they are free. And this was the policy in DC and everywhere in the slave states. And this gives you a sense. And I think this is. A really critical thing to think about this very long history of people of African descent or people who are not who don't appear white being subjected to special suspicion being subjected to a kind of you know doubt or assumptions about criminality that really does go all the way back um so Gilbert Horton uh, comes into Georgetown, this happens on the wharf at Georgetown, uh, which is part of the District of Columbia. Uh, some white man comes up to him and says, oh, I think you're probably a fugitive from slavery and I'm going to call the constable and we're going to put you under arrest. And he, you know, says, no, I'm a, free, I'm a free man from New York State. And they say, we don't care. Um, we're going to put you in jail. And then according to policy, we will advertise. And the idea here is they're advertising for the person supposed enslaver owner to come show up and pick them up from jail. And typically the, um, the rule was if you could not prove your freedom and no one came to get you, you could be sold into slavery. So the, the stakes for people, Gilbert Horton and other people who got in this situation, even regardless of what their actual backstory was, were incredibly high. Right? because they could actually end up being sold into slavery um what happens however thanks to in part to like print culture and the circulation of newspapers the washington intelligencer which is one of the most prominent papers publishes the ad that's been placed for gilbert horton the paper makes its way to new york state where people who know horton see it and they say wait 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 this is gilbert horton we know gilbert horton and As I mentioned, I mean, his father was a free man. They lived in Westchester County. They knew a man, a white man named William Jay, who is the son of John Jay, one of the kind of founding fathers. Uh, William Jay had a problem with issues with with, with this. Uh, Generally, William Jay was anti-slavery. He was a very interesting kind of constitutional thinker. So people in in, uh, Gilbert Horton's community, black and white people mobilized to provide the evidence that Horton would need to prove that he was a free man. And they send that evidence to DC. They get the governor of the state of New York involved, DeWitt Clinton. They get the president of the United States involved. And Horton, after spending about 30 days in prison in in jail in Washington is ultimately uh, released. And so, but, And, and I guess, you know, Horton goes on to Gilbert Horton stays in Washington for a while. And it's kind of interesting and hard to know why he decided to stay there. Um, But he is eventually able to prove his freedom and be released. But obviously this was an incredibly close call. And if nobody had seen that ad who knew him, or if he hadn't had papers that could be sent to Washington, or if he were just a guy who wanted to be free in Washington, DC, like none of this would have turned out the way that it did. But the reason, I mean, among the many reasons why I think this is a really interesting story is people in the North who disagree, who've had a problem with the arbitrary arrest of free black northerners made this into a kind of cause celebra. And so newspapers all over the North published Updates about uh, Gilbert Horton and people were it kind of generated a lot of outrage. Gilbert Horton's congressman, a man named Aaron Ward, who represented that district in New York, brought it up on the House floor um, and may and kind of argued that there needed to be an investigation into the laws of the District of Columbia. They argued that Gilbert Horton was a citizen of the state of New York and as a citizen, he could not be treated this way, even when he was traveling in a slaveholding jurisdiction, and so. This case of Gilbert Horton also kind of brings to light both the dangers that free black people faced when they were traveling in places where they weren't known, where they were new in town, particularly in slaveholding jurisdictions, but not only, and also some of the movement, right? This first civil rights movement that gets galvanized around cases like this to argue that the United States needs to do better right, that we need something better than just allowing this kind of thing to to continue.
1: Yeah, thank you for sharing that story because as I was reading about Horton, I was absolutely terrified, like literally legitimately like looking over my shoulder like, yo, like this is terrifying because, and and I liken it to conversations that we have today with students, You know, just pull up your pants, just work hard and go to college. Like like, I live in the middle of DC in Columbia Heights my brother's probably, I don't know, 5'10", 5'11", few, few hundred pounds, he's a generous sized dude. And um, he was coming to visit me and the cops jumped out, like, yo, you fit the description. And so, I'm and I'm thinking of Gilbert Horton, like, you know, without our proximity to whiteness, our, our blackness is not safe. Like if white people don't feel safe, right? So if he didn't have his freedom papers, No, I'm college educated. I work for such and such. You know, no, I'm coming to see my sister. No, here's, you know, here's her address, right? We have to have all these things just to prove that we have the human right, the unalienable human right to exist in public space. And so, I mean, and and then here, this is on top of people who describe Black people as vagrants, as lazy, and his dad worked and actually purchased his freedom, right? And so it's it's just like, no matter what we do, you know, it's not enough. And then the last thing that, that really, resonates with me about this story is what you said, right? The mass mobilization, the amount of base building and, co- and, and community-based um, use of, of, of media of the day, um, the, the, the role of relationships, like all the different people who kind of convened to, to say, hey, no, like that's that's Horton. Um, it was absolutely terrifying though. Absolutely terrifying. Um, because I'm like, where was he in DC when he got snatched? Like Can I visit that place, but Anyways, I, I could go on and on. I want to ask Kate just a couple more questions, and then we're going to open it up to, to uh, the the virtual the virtual space. Um, so, Kate, I would love to fast forward to chapter seven. You introduced me to John Jones and Mary Richardson, and I got to really emphasize this date. We're talking eighteen forty-one, so this, we're still before the Civil War. They live in Alton, Illinois. Um, So can you tell us what Jones's life and activism teach us about what what you describe as the northern debate about the right to free African-Americans? And then how does his story fit into this broader story of America's first civil rights movement? Um, I'm going to add a little bit more. And and feel free to also share with us some additional ways or expand on the ways you've already described that African-Americans were being described in public discourse by white people particularly lawmakers and then you know law enforcers or vigilante law enforcers? And then how did that mischaracterization inspire this, this activism and organizing that we see during the period? So I noticed that was a loaded, that's a lot, it's like 15 questions in one, but. Um, well, let
2: me, I'll just dig in and then if I miss anything, you can remind me to come back to it. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, let me do, I'll go, I'll start a little bit because we've been talking about these racist laws in the free state. So let me just say a little bit more about that because, uh, and especially for those of us who live in or have connections to places like Ohio, Illinois and Indiana, Illinois is where I am now. Uh, and this is where I'm from actually. Um, you know, many people aren't really aware of this part of the story, but um, the these states these states border the Ohio River, if you think about American geography, and I spent a lot of time thinking about the Ohio River as an internal border within the United States when I was working on this book, these are free states that are on the north side of the Ohio River, right adjacent to slave states. And a lot of white legislators in these states had a fear that uh, African-Americans were going to migrate into the states, just looking, you know, coming across the river from slave states in particular, whether they were people who had um, become free and still lived in the slave states. And there were um, thousands and thousands of free African-Americans who lived in the slaveholding states, which we often kind of forget or don't necessarily notice. Um, So whether they had already become free or they were escaping from slavery and seeking freedom, um, many of these white legislators and white residents were really worried about the idea of a growing black population in their states. And this kind of goes back to what I was describing before about there were these white colonizationists who thought that uh, this there was really no place in the United States for free black people. They simply couldn't imagine a multiracial democracy. Um, and so one of the things that they, they weren't necessarily all colonizationists but they advocate these laws uh, that for example, they require free African-Americans to register when they come into, the, into a county with local county officials. They have to pay a registration fee. They have to get people to put up bonds for their, um, to make sure that that our sort of promises that people will not get arrested or not uh, become a public charge. Um, They're not entitled to testify in court cases involving whites. When school systems are established, when public school systems are established in these states, African-American children are excluded from them. And one of the kinds of rhetoric, and this often people find this to be very resonant with present day issues, that the rhetoric that many of these white people use is to say, you know, I'm not racist, but um, some of them will say I'm I actually am very racist and this is why, but some will say, you know, I just think that um, people coming from slavery, they don't, they'll become, they'll be dependent. They're poor, poverty is a problem, Um, they don't know how to work because they've spent their lives enslaved. And I mean, yes, they worked, but they were coerced to work in slavery. So now they're gonna come into our states and become dependent on public charge or on public resources. And that's gonna be expensive for us, right? So they make all of these justifications in the name of the public good, what's good for our community. This is just not, they would say, this is just not good for our community. These are not a desirable group of people in our community. And so really one of the things that interested me a lot about that facet of this is like the conflation of language of class with race and these notions of poverty that are racialized already all the way back then. Um, The ways that people talked about Black migrants, the ways that people talked about, you know, Black poverty, in fact, there's a great uh, rejoinder from a guy named David Blackmore who identifies as Black in his writing. He's writing in a, a white Quaker newspaper as early as like 1817. And he responds to that argument. And he says, you know, we might be poor, um, but if we are, it's because our ancestors were brought here in chains and never paid for any of the work that they did. And not only that, he says, you know, these laws are counterproductive, um, they're ineffectual, we're migrating into Ohio anyway, he says things like that. Um, So this is the kind of stuff that people are up against, the acceptance of these arguments, the acceptance of these ideas. And so to get back to John Jones, um, John Jones was originally born in North Carolina He was born free, it appears, but his mother was well. His mother was an African American woman. His father apparently was a German immigrant. Um, He was free, and his mother sent him to Memphis as an apprentice. So he was free, but he wasn't really free because he was apprenticed out. So he didn't have once he was an apprentice, didn't have a choice about whether to um, really be there in that line of work. But the kind of good thing about being an apprentice, he learned a trade, so he became a tailor and that served him very well going forward to have a skilled trade. He ends up um, ending his apprenticeship in Memphis. While he was there, he met Mary Richardson and she was from what seems to be a very interesting free black family as well. And I've been doing a little bit more research um, on them as part of a project that's associated with the Colored Conventions Project. So we're doing this kind of web exhibit on the history of African Americans in Illinois in the 1840s and 50s, um, and through that I have learned some more about Mary Richardson's family. So her family, they pass through Memphis and eventually they land in Alton, Illinois. When Jones, John Jones completes his apprenticeship, he goes up to Alton to be with Mary. They get married um, in Alton and then they move to Chicago in 1845. And Chicago at this point is a very um, growing city. Uh, Chicago did not, it was only really grew up as a big city starting in the 1840s. African-American migration into Illinois had actually been like mostly in the southern and western parts of the state, like that bordered on Missouri and um, Kentucky. So like Chicago was only becoming what it would later become as a hub of Um, Black life as a hub of commerce and a hub of Black life, uh, just in the 1840s. And Mary Richardson and John Jones were part of creating a really amazing, I think, underappreciated activist Black community in Chicago in this period. And... um, Around that same time, they found the first AME church in Chicago. Uh, It's called Quinn Chapel. Uh, The first Black Baptist church is also founded in Chicago in the 1840s. So they're building institutions. Um, And Jones begins writing uh, extensively about what is wrong with Illinois Black laws. And um, he is writing in the Chicago Tribune when it's first published. They publish a series of articles by him about not only how Illinois should repeal its racist laws, that exists, I mean, that's the kind of civil rights laws, but black men should also have the right to vote. So he's just out there kind of saying, we want full citizenship. We want every single right that white people already enjoy. Um, and they a lot Jones becomes uh, they're one of the best known of these the black activists in Chicago. I should say they're very closely associated with what we know as the Underground Railroad also. So in other words, they're all in addition to kind of petitioning and trying to get the Illinois laws repealed, they're constantly helping people who are escaping from slavery get to freedom. and Chicago is a really, really important point on that route. Um, because if people, especially from Missouri and also Kentucky can make their way across the state of Illinois, get to Chicago where there's a relatively uh, extensive network of black and white people who are willing to participate in this, they can take either a train or a boat across Lake Michigan over through the Great Lakes over either to end up in Detroit and crossing over from there into Canada, or um, other, you know, points east and into Canada. So Chicago, so their networks also become really important for kind of subverting um, slavery in that respect. So, um, you know, Jones is Ohio is the place where the civil rights movement is most effective in getting laws repealed, and they do manage to get most of the Ohio Black laws repealed in 1849. Illinois is a much tougher nut to crack because it is dominated by the Democrats who were the uh, most conservative, more racist of the two political parties. But Jones and his coalition of people based largely in Chicago Keep at it. I mean, he just keeps working at it. They form a statewide organization in the 1850s. They continue to press for repeal. And finally, it's not until 1865, right before the first the first federal civil rights laws passed, um, they succeed in getting the Illinois legislature to repeal those laws that they've been fighting against for so long. So um, his is a remarkable, their story is really remarkable. And um, yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, talking more about them, particularly in the context where I live in here in Chicago area.
1: It's amazing, like black love and black movements. And it's, it just made me think about Charlene Carruthers, BYP 100 and the Chicago style of organizing. And as you, you know, as I'm, I'm listening to you talk about Jones and Richardson, I'm like, wow, again, Again, you know, our movements have roots, like far past the, you know, the 1900s into the 1800s. Um, and this its just, my mind is, is blown. Um, so before we go on, I, I just have to say, please, y'all, check check out this book. Um, I don't want anybody leaving this space today having your students think that Lincoln freed the slaves. Like, we got to, we have overwhelming <laughs> evidence that, that we, we free ourselves. There's, there's no justice, there's just us. So Kate, I want to ask you one, I mean, I want to ask you many more questions, but just in the interest of time and, and, and practicing equity um, and leaving space for other people to ask questions, let's end this part together on, on this question right here. Um, how did America's first civil rights movement shape federal policy? And then this is the real big one. Spoiler alert, if you haven't got to the end of the book yet, <laughs> what did it accomplish? But it's still read it. Read it, y'all. It's different when you read it, but I want to hear from from Kate.
2: You know, and I think that this question, about when we ask questions about social movements like did they succeed or did they fail, right? What how do we evaluate success? And I think it's complicated. Most most movements for racial justice do not get all that they want, right? Um, And so we need to look and think about what constitutes success here. Like I said, I mean, there's a very clear success in Ohio where they do succeed in repealing um, the black laws. But my argument in the book is that this movement was highly successful. And part of the reason that we don't already know about this movement is because we take for granted the principles that it advocated. And so it became invisible. So when you think about the reality that in the free states, it was entirely possible and in fact happened that you could have these laws that literally said, you know, free quote unquote free Negroes and mulattoes, this, that, and the other thing, right? That were like explicitly discriminated based on race. And that was widely accepted. There was, and we haven't really had a chance to talk about this, but there was not considered to be anything unconstitutional about those state laws, not to mention the laws of the South, which permitted and advanced human bondage, right? To get to a point where you have three constitutional amendments that not only abolish slavery, but also Um, Declare the principle of equality before the law and that every person is entitled to due process of law and that every person born in the United States is a citizen. And then a 15th amendment that embodies the principle of no racial discrimination. We have to ask the question, how did we even get the principle of no racial discrimination into our federal policies, we cannot take for granted that it's there it wasn't there from the founding, it only got there in the 1860s. And so why is it there? Because of this movement and because of the civil war, right? I mean, so it's because of this movement and also because there was a huge crisis in this country that made kinds of constitutional change and legislative change possible that never would have been possible before. So that's a key part of it too. It's not only, it is partially about their creativity, their perseverance, their values, their ability to persuade people. And it's also that they had the kind of good fortune to live in this moment of crisis where all kinds of new things were possible. And they stepped in to that moment prepared with a set of ideas that were anti-racist ideas. Um, And they were able to enact those at the federal level for the first time. And that takes the shape of the three constitutional amendments that we're familiar with. Um, as well as this nation's first ever federal civil rights laws. The first one was the Civil Rights Act of 1866. And then there's several more uh, civil rights laws passed at the federal level in 1870 and 71. So instead of assuming that this nation would ever get to that point, if we ask the question, how did we get there? The answer has everything to do with this movement and the people, you know, like John Jones and Mary Richardson Jones and the people who wrote that, uh, wrote those petitions and went door to door and put this issue on people's agenda. Um, And that's, that's kind of the point that I want to, that I want to make in the book. And, and that is obviously not to say that we get all those federal policies during reconstruction and we all live happily ever after. I mean, we all know that that is also not the case, but we this country would not have gotten as far as it did during that kind of remarkable period of reconstruction if that movement hadn't paved the way.
1: Thank you. I mean y'all heard it first right here from from Kate herself who did the research that that African Americans, our white allies of, of, of conscience um, were, were, were fighting for America's, First, civil rights, and um, I think both Bill Cosby and Kanye West, I wish they could be here tonight, (laughs) long story short. So Kate, while folks are kind of thinking through their their questions, uh, let me ask you this one. Um, High school teacher. I'm going to be talking to my colleagues actually we have a grade level meeting tomorrow um if you were to give me like a sound bite of why it's important to teach America's first civil rights movement um and why it's important to situate it actually during the antebellum period and not just the 20 20th century what would you suggest I tell my colleagues tomorrow
2: oh such a I don't know I I think um you know if if the if part of the point is to highlight the black freedom struggle and the kind of continuity and long history of the struggle to make a more just less racist country then I think the key points to bring out are the people who were fighting this fight even before slavery was abolished particularly in the free states where they, where black people faced so many, you know discriminatory policies, so much oppression that people were raising their voices. Um, people were talking about how to oppose these policies, what they could do, and we have the sources, right? And so if you want to bring this into the classroom, I mean, there are so many sources and I would love to you know, kind of recommend some and work with you all as ed- an education project to kind of make some of those, highlight some of those um, because, you know, There's more, I guess, one of the things I think about, and I don't know how you all, how people are teaching in their classrooms, but the only story here is not the story about the debate over slavery and the coming of the Civil War, right? There and it's also this the only social movement story is not the story of the anti-slavery movement. I think that's maybe how we tend to think about it. And within that, even tend to emphasize white activism over black activism. People like William Lloyd Garrison, um, I know is often on the you know, people you need to know list, um, where we can bring forward not just black abolitionists who were fighting and, and insisting that slavery must be abolished, but also people who were fighting against racism in their own communities and their own states in the north, uh, we don't. Necess- that's not necessarily on our radar. And I think, in some ways, that can also ring more closely to our present, right? Because there's so many similarities. Slavery seems like it's long since gone away, although, you know, people have different views on that. But like, if that looks like it's in the rearview mirror, certainly these questions about, um, of, about. Law enforcement about equality, about what racial equality should look like in a
1: free society are very much with us to this day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And so we're getting some amazing questions in the chat. I see a couple of folks with hands raised. If you wouldn't mind just um, throwing your questions in the chat and I'm going to kick it to a question. I got to scroll back up a little bit. Um, Kate, this is for you. So who's someone you didn't know about before you wrote this book? Um, who you discovered and who sticks with you. I love this question. Um, and specifically, if it's anyone you haven't mentioned tonight um, or someone you may have, but you wanna say more about.
2: I mean, when I started this book, I didn't really know the whole parameters of the story of black sailors and how their work lives raise these questions about black citizenship that the nation struggled with on and off for the entire antebellum period and tried to resolve in the Civil Rights Act of 1866 and the 14th Amendment. And so like Gilbert Horton, and then I I found out about Gilbert Horton who I had not known about before, but it only took me a while of working with those sources to kind of circle back and realize that he too was a sailor So let me give you an example, which I was kind of looking forward to talking about today. I write about not in depth, but I, and I don't actually know that much about the story of his life, but about a guy named Joseph Thompson, who was a free black sailor from Massachusetts. And, you know, we talk about different ways that people um, do mobilization, put their agendas out there. Joseph Thompson gave, what. was an experienced sailor, he'd been to France, he'd been you know, like all over the place and he ends up in New Orleans on his ship. And he says to the ship's mate, um, I want you to pay me my wages now that we're in New Orleans because I might want to go and buy some stuff. And the mate for some reason gets really angry, accuses him of stealing, gets Thompson thrown in jail, and then tries to sell Thompson, who is a free man into slavery. But Thompson, um, according to his account, and he gives, gives an affidavit under oath when he gets back to Massachusetts, he's like, well, I knew some French. And so I was able to talk to the French speaking jailer and have him get the word out to some other white people I knew in New Orleans to come and get me out. And they got me out. And he makes his way back to Massachusetts and he makes this affidavit to a white abolitionist where he says that this is what happened to him and this is how vulnerable he was just doing his job as a sailor in New Orleans and also that while he was in jail he encountered he says something like a steady stream of free black sailors from ports like New York, Philadelphia and Boston who are making their way into slavery in Louisiana, and it's basically saying you guys have to find a way to stop this. Um, and that affidavit gets published in a in a tract that this white guy named David Lee Child writes, along with a couple of other affidavits from African Americans who were from Massachusetts, attesting to their experiences in Southern jails in having people who are you know having people uh, who they knew incarcerated in Southern jails, or they themselves are being incarcerated. And their willingness to speak out also galvanizes, again, they needed white allies. They couldn't have gotten it done in the legislature without some white allies, but it helps the injustice of it and the amplification of it helps galvanize white people to try to get the Massachusetts legislature to take a stand on this issue and bring it to the federal level, um, which they finally do in 1839 and into the 1840s. So again, it's like the courageousness Of people who are willing to speak up and bring it to the people, you know, if they themselves don't have the platform, get get a platform by bringing it to the people who are able to amplify the message and get it out. Thanks for that question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that was a powerful question. One, j'ai besoin de pratiquer ma français. You know, (laughs) the interpreter. I need to practice my French. That that's, that's that's all. Like, I just need to shine light on our creativity, like why are black people just so dope? Well, what happened was I just started speaking French. and Like, yo, it's just, you can't make this stuff up. You just can't make this history up. And the second thing is, this reminds me of something Jeff Duncan and John Day said, you know, the only reason why I'm free is to get other people free. The reason why I know how to read and write is to teach other people how to read and write, right? This, this emancipation, this liberation can't just stay with me. And then, um, the, the next piece that you just said uh, it reminds me of uh, Reynolds and Ibrahim um, Kendi, like um, the opposite of racist isn't not racist. It's being anti-racist. It's a verb. It's the actions that we take um, in the name of, of racial justice. All right, so I'm checking the time. I'm going to sift through the chat. Uh, I see another question as well. Do you think religious groups and anti-slavery organizations were important in this era. And you talk um, quite a bit actually in your book about the role of Quakers, I- I'm thinking about, but if they're, and then you talk about the AME church and Black Baptist, um, say a little bit more about that, of course, please. Uh,
2: <clears throat> religious organizations are one of the main ways that many, many Americans, most of whom were Protestant at this time, although growing, there were growing numbers of uh, Catholics in the country. It's one of the main ways they organize both their spiritual lives and their kind of civic lives. And so, yes, uh, church organizations were really important here. And we see, you know, black churches in the free states and in the slave states, but in the free states function as community meeting spaces, right? So, Once you can have a church, you have a space where you can um, talk more freely than you could if whites were around. You have a space where you can hold schools. You can have have a congregation where you can uh, have mutual aid societies and things like that. And black churches are certainly foundations of the kind of activism that I'm talking about. A lot of white Protestant churches, um, you know, splintered over the question of slavery, including in the North. So to give an example, in my research on Chicago, I found out that when John Jones originally moved to Chicago, he actually joined a white led Baptist church. And the white Baptists in uh, Chicago had already gone through a split with the abolitionist Baptists kind of seceding from the main Baptist church and forming their own, like, abolitionist identified. Um, Baptist church, which was separate from the one that was probably not very pro-slavery, but did not probably wanna politicize itself and get involved uh, in abolitionism. And so, you know, church channels were ways that white people also expressed their disagreements and their principles and had really big fights about what kinds of positions to take on these types of issues.
1: Let's talk a little bit, um, let's, let's seal this deal around um, white violence like white people you describe um, almost how the how mobs deputized themselves so to speak to enforce these anti-black laws and 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 i want to really say it was literally the legal law and also the law in terms of the social custom that that the legal system would be anti-black um and just i don't want to end censoring white people so please ground your response in like how black people again um, resisted and, and also uh, asserted our humanity during this era. And I think this will be our last question.
2: Okay, thank you for that. Um, so I'll just start by saying the, the the explicitly anti-black policies of the free states and the slave states, right? Um, <clears throat> sanctioned white vigilante violence. So they cast African-Americans as um, outsiders as people who were vulnerable. They literally made them vulnerable by prohibiting African-Americans from testifying in cases involving white people. Um, And so oftentimes or sometimes those laws were not enforced, um, not to the letter or not at all. And yet we see repeatedly another example of it is in this large um, uprising of white people against the black community of Cincinnati in 1829. They had not been enforcing the registration law that required African-Americans to register in Cincinnati black people were moving in. There was a substantial black community. There were black churches. Um, and then all of a sudden white people start to get antsy. They start to say, look, there's too many uh, black folks here. Let's start enforcing the law. And the Cincinnati government says, we're gonna start enforcing the laws so you better get registered. This is the summer of 1829. Um, and then before they even begin to enforce it through normal like legal channels, the white community kind of rises up and basically riots against the black community in Cincinnati leading to um, about half the community half the African American population in Cincinnati leaves permanently some settle in Canada some settle in other parts of Ohio. Um, but just to end on a more positive note and to end with more of what uh, black people themselves did, you know the other side of the coin is just to think I found it interesting to think about African American migration northward in this period we think about the great migration a lot. Um, but. African Americans were moving from slave states to free states at quite a significant pace despite these laws that were very unfriendly and and they they were demonstrating with their feet that they expected to find a better life for themselves and their families in the free states however racist the policies might have been and indeed i think they did um and i and this is a little bit you know without romanticizing how life in the free states would have been for, for free black people. There were more opportunities, as I said before, to to speak your mind, uh, more opportunities to own land and farm without being disturbed by white people, to form communities, to form churches. And so I think it's also just affords us an opportunity to think about the ways, the continuities perhaps in the ways that um, despite conditions that face them, uh, African-Americans have pushed forward with a search for both how to find a better life for themselves, their families and their communities, and also then how to fight back against the situations that they were facing.
1: Kate, this has been amazing to say the very least. I, I'm, I'm just gonna have to say thank you. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. This podcast is brought to you by the Zen Education Project, Coordinated by Teaching for Change and Rethinking Schools.